Welcome to our second season of Music and the Brain podcasts from the Library of Congress. I'm Steve Mencher, and I'm joined today by Dr. Richard Saitoic, a professor of neurology at the George Washington University Medical Center and founder of Capital Neurology, a private clinic in Washington, D.C. Now, your book, Richard, has probably the most intriguing title I've heard lately. Uh, it's called Wednesday is Indigo Blue, and, and the subtitle is Discovering the Brain of Synesthesia. So let's start by having me ask you what is synesthesia, and then whether the title is based on a specific case study of someone for whom Wednesday is indeed indigo blue. Well, synesthesia is pretty easy because everybody knows the word anesthesia, meaning no sensation. So synesthesia means joined sensation, indicating that uh, some people are born with two or more of their senses coupled so that my voice, for instance, is not only something that they hear, but something that they might see or taste or feel as a physical touch as well. And as children, they're shocked to discover that other people are not like them. Hmm. And is there someone who you uh, ran into in the course of researching this book uh, who told you that Wednesday for them was indigo blue? No. Uh, my co-author and I, David Eagleman, just in, we thought that was a great title because uh, one of the most common types of synesthesia is seeing uh, days of the week and, and months of the year as colored. And so actually on my Facebook page, there's an incredible uh, posting going on of, no, it's not indigo blue. It's sort of orangey with mauve speckles in it. No, it's beige. <laughs> No, it's the green, it's this, that, the other. So it's sort of, it's, it's quite fun. Great. Uh, now, in the book, as I was reading it, you mentioned that there's been an explosion of interest in synesthesia in the past 10 years or maybe a little more, and that there was a lot written about it at the turn of the century. But I'm wondering, why was there a long gap in between the time when there was a big interest in it in the, in the teens and early in the century, and then it was sort of rediscovered? And why has interest reawakened? It fell into oblivion, I think largely because of behaviorism, which said that all subjective experience was taboo. So uh, even memory, language were completely, and certainly consciousness, were certainly off the table as respectable topics for scientific study. So when I became interested in this in 1979, and it happened by accident, people, they looked at me like I was insane and say, and said, you stay away from this. This is too weird, too new age. It will ruin your career. Um, so there's, it took me about 15 years, actually, to convince my colleagues that, that uh, this was a real phenomenon. And then a younger generation uh, of neuroscientists came along. And so we now have uh, researchers in 15 countries who are writing uh, papers and doctoral theses and academic books on this. Now, there has been, as we've been talking about the subject uh, of music and the brain, also a lot of uh, focus on the fact that we can see stuff happening in the brain in ways that we couldn't before. Is that also hooked into why we can understand a little bit more about synesthesia? Yes and no. Um, the hardest no skeptics have always demanded pictures of the brain, and they got them because you can show activation, let's say, synesthetes see colors in response to spoken words, and indeed you see the color area of the brain light up. But it was always possible to demonstrate synesthesia's reality by much simpler and less expensive means. Again, those means seem to have been, in large part, as I'm reading through, that 
the repetition, the fact that you could talk to someone and then a year later the same number would mean the same color to them, and if they were making it up or if, if it was an idea that was sort of occurring to them each time, there wouldn't be the same connections between, say, numbers and colors. Right. That's just one, one method. Basically, it, it's called psychophysics, which is sort of measuring people's responses in how they perceive. And so things like optical illusions, perceptual grouping, let's say that I show you a matrix of twos hidden within a group of fives and tell you there's a hidden pattern. You and I would have to search for that. But for a a synesthete who sees twos as differently colored from five, it'll pop out and they'll have a search advantage. And they'll say, oh, there's a triangle, there's a square, whatever the hidden figure happens to be. I see. Okay. Now we're going to get to music in a minute because we we do like to talk about music and the brain. But I'd like to start with visual art because I noticed that in in the book you have a a chat with uh, David Hockney and he's someone uh, who is a synesthete and his work uh, represents and and demonstrates this. What did you get from talking with him? Well, what first called my attention to the fact that David might be synesthetic was when he started painting for operas. He painted opera sets. So everything before that was, you know, silent paintings. And all the critics, um, Art in America magazine had a big spread, and all the critics said, oh, my God, this is so different. You know, wow, what a a different direction for him to go in. And there were things that he said, like uh, the tree music in Ravel's L'Enfant à Sautillage. He said, you know, the music suggested a certain weight and a shape and a color. So I wrote to him, and he wrote back after about a four-month gap and said, you know, dear Dr. Saitoic, I have carried your letter around with me for months, wondering whether I should answer or or not, uh, it's your whole idea of, you know, whether it would destroy the mystery of, of what he was doing. And uh, so to, to cut to the chase, uh, what uh, music triggers for David, shape, weight, color, and mass, that is the, the spaciousness of a color, the sort of a mass of it. And for him, it is the, uh, the sequence, the melody, rather than the key or the timber of instruments or the, um, or the actual notes that, that trigger the color. So has he been feeling this sort of throughout his whole career, but hasn't uh, expressed it uh, out right, loud? Right. He didn't know that there was anything special about this. And that's, that's a common feature that people say, oh, you mean there's a name for this? I didn't know. So they go from thinking that everybody does it until they say something offhand like, oh, that music is really pink. What does it look like to you? And their f- friend will look at them like they're insane. And then they realize, oh, this is not something that everybody does. I hear, you know, in what you're saying and also in in the book, you give such a wide range of uh, the prevalence of this in the population. And I, and sitting here today, I'd like to get your sense of, of how many people, if we pass them on the street, if we pass 10 or 20 or 50 people, how many of them have something of this synesthesia? This is hard to believe, but one in 23 people have some kind of synesthesia. As I said, the most common form is sensing the days of the week as colored, and that'll stay constant for a lifetime. And then one in 90 people have another very common type of synesthesia, which is perceiving letters and numbers or any kind of written grapheme, it's called, the written symbol, as colored. Huh. 
and they have been sort of hiding this from the rest of their, their friends and, and neighbors and in their classes when they feel this, or it hasn't been appropriate for them to bring this up? Or? Well, there's two ways. One woman in her late 60s wrote to me and said, oh, I was reading in Nabokov, and he's got exactly the same kind of colored letters that I do, and I always thought everybody did it, but now I'm realizing that it's sort of unusual, or the opposite of people feeling incredibly alone and isolated and that they are the only one who perceives the world as they do. So it's been a recurring motif over the past 30 years of people expressing this incredible relief to know that they are finally believed, that this is real, that it is scientifically studied, and best of all, that there are other people like them. They love to get together with one another and compare, <laughs> and compare parties, notes. Right. In, well, in, in, in at the medical center in, in Hanover, Germany, they have a synesthesia cafe, which uh, researchers are not allowed to. It's only the, only the synesthetes themselves. It's, it's terrific fun. That's great. Let's talk about some of uh, the notable composers and performers and others who have experienced uh, synesthesia. I know in the book you mentioned Franz Liszt, Rimsky Korsakoff. Uh, Amy Beach, uh, performers like Itzhak Perlman. Uh, I like the fact that Eddie Van Halen and Stevie Wonder might also be synesthetes. In studying these musicians... Well, you mentioned Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Um, it, it just shows that it, synesthesia is actually quite common in blind people. Ah, oh, that's fascinating. Now, in looking at these artists and performers, have you noticed any commonalities or how, you know, what pops out at you? What's common is that synesthesia is more prevalent in creative individuals. So among the musicians, um, the jazz legend Marianne McPartland says, uh, admits that at the age of 91, she never heard of the word synesthesia, but she is dead certain that uh, D major is daffodil yellow and A is hot pink. <laughs> and you've talked to her about this? Well, uh, actually, I have not talked with her directly, but a colleague of mine is actually researching now and writing a book about synesthetic musicians. Oh, fabulous. Well, we'd be very eager to, to And you see this, this work of that in the book of Wednesday's Indigo Blue and the increased interest in it has allowed people to come forth. Itzhak Perlman, for years, would never talk about it at, uh, at Juilliard, and finally he opened up. And to him, um, it's more of an inward experience than an external light show. But when he bows the G-string of his Stradivarius, it's a deep forest green. The A is red. The next B is yellow. Um, So people are finally more willing to talk about it. And this seems as less odd. One of the musicians or composers that people have talked uh, about for years, of course, is uh, Olivier Messiaen. Oh, yes. And you mentioned in the book that he hears music and sees color in his, back back and forth. Yes. Now, can he, you tell me about that? He's the one of the um, minority of synesthetes in which it is bidirectional, so sight and sound goes both ways. And uh, when he did the commission uh, for uh, the piece about Bryce Canyon, Utah, called From the Canyon to the Stars, he said, well, uh, the music just wrote itself as my eye went up the canyon walls and that magnificently blue Stellar's J flew overhead. And there's a whole movement in that symphony called The Orange Red Rocks. Messian invented his odd way of composing specifically to convey the color of sounds. And his method is known as the modes of limited transposition, which are these strange clusters of notes, and they're not harmonies in the conventional sense. They're not even recognized chords. He says, quote, they sound like colors. 
And um, he has three kinds of colors, uh, simple ones, red, green, blue. Others are pairs, so blue-violet, red-orange. And then the, other, the third kind is an overall color that is flecked, hemmed, speckled, or studded with other kinds of opalescent colors in them. Wow. Um, at the start of one of your chapters that, that I particularly enjoyed, you asked a number of key questions, and I'm sure you'll answer some of these in the lecture that you're about to give in about a half an hour. But let me throw them out, and I'd like you to pick out some of the highlights of, of stuff you may be talking about. How can synesthesia help us understand the neurological basis of metaphor? What kinds of art does synesthesia inspire? And what might synesthesia tell us about creativity? Um, you can start anywhere with those three, but I, I think what's particularly interesting to me as you filter your answers is that uh, I'm curious about what does studying synesthesia tell us about everyone, whether or not they're synesthetes? Well, brains that work differently are not so strange after all, and we can learn about them. Uh, basically, there's been a huge paradigm shift. When I started out 30 years ago, the orthodoxy said the brain is organized into modules. So there was a language module, a vision module, a memory module. And by definition, they did not interact with, with one another, therefore making synesthesia impossible. And I think this is one of the reasons that they had to deny it because they, they had to protect the theory. Now, of course, it's totally different. We know that the brain is massively cross-connected. And um, as to what's going on in synesthete's brain, it is increased activity in existing wiring rather than extra wiring causing short circuits. So synesthesia has caused a paradigm shift in two senses. As I said, I just said the scientific one. But the other way is personal in showing us that um, everybody doesn't see the world the way you do. And each brain uniquely filters the world into its own subjective experience. Hmm. So it just, it just shows, tells us to be more attentive to the differences among people in the world. It really calls into question how objective is objectivity, because uh, it's, it's filtered through an enormous subjectivity in all of us. Now, today, you're going to be standing in front of the crowd, and you're wearing this incredible, almost electric yellow sweater. Now, do you think some of the synesthetes are going to come and have a particular connection with that color? I think so, yes. They love colors. Um, it, they they uh, describe them in exacting, minute detail. When you do tests on the computer, you know, the Windows color picker gives you 16.4 million choices. And even then, some of them say they can't find the exact match. And the reason for that, of course, is that the V4 area of their brain, which is the color area, is not being stimulated optically. It's being stimulated by other senses. And so that's why synesthetes say that they see odd or weird or ugly colors that they wouldn't deliberately choose, but you can't do anything about it because synesthesia is involuntary. It happens to you. You can't make it happen, and you can't not make it happen. So you've been studying this essentially for more than 30 years. Yes. And what's been your favorite thing that you've discovered or, or the most interesting person that you've talked to along the way? Well, it's hard to say because it, it is just such a fascinating topic. You never, it's full of surprises. You never know what you'll find out. Um, and when you answer one question, 10 more appear. So, I mean, I could continue with this till I die, probably. My, my co-author, David Eagleman, became interested in the number forms, which is seeing numbers in space around your body. 
and he, he figured that uh, he would take about a year to figure out the gene for this, and, and he would move on to other things. Well, that was about seven years ago. And speaking of the synesthesia gene, um, there are five groups that are hunting down the, the gene for this because it's very common. And the question is, well, why are 1 in 23 people walking around with a mutation for a trait that's pretty but apparently useless? It must be doing something of inapparent value in order for evolution to select for it so strongly. And we think that it's a gene for metaphor and creativity because... Um, what the gene is doing is hyper-connecting disparate, different areas of the brain and seemingly unrelated things. And that's the definition of metaphor, seeing the similar in the dissimilar. And to go back to artists, um, they use metaphor with ease, um, you know, writers, painters, etc. And of course, there's, there's much more to creativity than uh, an ease with metaphor, but I think it's a starting point, and we can turn... They're just being metaphoric, you know, no different than saying loud tie or sharp cheese. We can turn that on its head and say, perhaps looking at the perceptual condition can give us a handle on the neurologic basis of metaphor, how the brain represents metaphor. Great. So, in fact, that sort of answers my question about why your work applies to everyone and what's important about it to all of us and why I'm sure you'll get a big and receptive crowd uh, when you go upstairs in a few minutes to give your talk. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. So thank you very much. Uh, I've been joined today by Richard Saitoic, a uh, professor of neurology at the George Washington University Medical Center. I'm Steve Mencher, and this has been another one of our Music and the Brain podcasts from the Library of Congress. Thank you. Thank you.